The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. we got the power to change the world. Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our healthcare provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi. This is Dr. Susan. Welcome to Occupy Health. We've occupied Wall Street. Now it's time to take back our health. We'll be interviewing many experts to learn about health and about the things that your doctor may not be telling you. We will cover many topics. We will have many different opinions. Be sure to consult with your doctor because each person's different and the advice you might hear might not apply to everyone. First, we'll be starting with the topic of brain health. Next week, brain, uh, pardon me, today we're starting with the topic of heart health. Next week will be brain health, and then we'll cover toxins, autoimmunity disease, diabetes, thyroid health, depression, anxiety, and many, many more topics. If you have any topics you would like to hear about or any particular questions, you can always email me at drsusan at occupyhealth.com. I'd also like to introduce you to functional medicine, which takes the approach of looking under the hood of the car. We will look beyond the disease management and the sick care that we see in our society. I mean, our current paradigm is we wait till an illness develops and then we get a pill, which may mask the symptoms and may create new symptoms. But with certain tests, we can look under the hood, see how the pathways of the body are going and take preemptive steps long before the disease starts. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I'm a filmmaker, MIT-trained engineer, and also an economist. I've studied many forms of healing, including acupuncture, Ayurveda, traditional Chinese medicine, homeopathy, and energy forms of healing. I am boarded in integrative medicine and psychiatry in the U.S., and I'm on the consultant registry in the U.K., Worked in 10 countries, including the Foreign Service and as a professor at the European Institute for Business Administration in France. I've also worked for the National Health Service in England. So let our journey begin, and I am starting with an expert who has so much wisdom that I can't wait to introduce you to him. Mark Houston has got so many accolades. He's got very many positions. He's an associate clinical professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine, clinical instructor in the Department of Physical Therapy and Healthcare at George Washington University, an adjunct professor in metabolic medicine at the University of South Florida Medical School, director of the Hypertensive Institute in Vascular Biology, and the medical director of the Division of Human Nutrition at St. Thomas Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a chief medical officer for Agile Solutions, medical consultant for biosutricals, etc., 
Now, he was selected as one of the top physicians in hypertension in the U.S. from the years 2008 to 2014 by the Consumer Research Council and also by U.S. Today as one of the most influential doctors in the U.S. in the areas of hypertension, hyperlipidemia. This occurred twice in 2009 and 2010. He also was awarded the Patient's Choice Award in 2010 through 2012 by Consumer Reports USA. He is triple boarded in the American Board of Internal Medicine, the Society of Hypertension, and the American Board of Anti-Aging and Regenerative Medicines. He holds two master's degrees, one in human nutrition from the University of Bridgeport, Connecticut, and another in metabolic and nutritional medicine in the University of South Florida School of Medicine. He's presented over 10,000 lectures and has over 250 medical articles in peer-reviewed journals. But most impressive are his books that I have in front of me. One of them is What Your Doctor May Not Tell You About Hypertension, and the other is What Your Doctor May Not Tell You About Cardiovascular Disease. This uh, is geared for you folks out there so you can learn all about your heart health and what questions to go to your doctor with. For the more technically inclined, he has handbooks of hypertension, and he has a new one here that's uh, Nutritional Integrative Strategies in Cardiovascular Medicine that he wrote with Stephen Sinatra, who will be on the show later. So it is my great pleasure and honor to introduce you to Mark Houston. Thank you, Susan, for that kind introduction. It's a pleasure to be with you tonight. Oh, I mean, you have so much wisdom that you can share with us, and you present the topic of heart health in a way that is so easy to understand. Uh, I can't wait to hear what you have to say. And today, I mean, notice the life expectancy is decreasing. A large percentage of people are dying from vascular disease. And half the people with heart attacks do not have the traditional risk factors. So can you present uh, your view of cardiovascular disease and how it fits in with the current paradigm? Yes, I will. As you know, cardiovascular disease, particularly heart attacks, coronary heart disease, and strokes, account for the number one cause of death in the United States and now worldwide. And our paradigm of treatment diagnosis and prevention has really become obsolete to the point that we've reached a limit in our ability to actually control those problems. And if we don't change this, we're actually going to start to see an increase again in cardiovascular disease because of the epidemic occurring now in our younger patients, even in their teens, with hypertension, dyslipidemia, diabetes, and obesity. And the approach that we have to take is more of a functional medicine or metabolic approach where we understand the process of cardiovascular disease and we prevent it with a totally different medical model than what we're using now, which is totally interventional and more acute medicine. So tell me about this process. If you look at cardiovascular disease, there are an infinite number of insults that come into the body every day that can adversely affect the heart and the blood vessels. But the body responds in a way to defend itself against those insults. So when your vascular system responds, there's only three things it can do. It can become inflamed, develop oxidative stress, or develop what's called immune dysfunction. So infinite insults, only three finite responses. Those finite responses 
are also similar to other processes that cause brain disease, gastrointestinal disease, cancer, and endocrine problems. So the way to approach all diseases, but also specifically cardiovascular disease, is to recognize what are those three finite responses, understand how they're occurring, and track back to the beginning. Ask yourself, why does this patient have an inflamed heart or an inflamed blood vessel? Is it related to their diet? Is it related to some toxin? Is it related to some hormone or some other risk factor that you're not recognizing? Go back to the beginning, the genesis of the disease, the genesis of that process that gets you there, and try to fix the problem, get rid of the insults. In other words, reduce the allostatic load and then address the three finite responses in a totally different methodology. Well, tell us about these three responses. The first one you mentioned was inflammation. What is that? Well, inflammation is most you would recognize, for example, if you were to burn your hand. Immediately, it becomes red and swollen, and over a period of time, it gets painful. It hurts really severely, but then the healing process occurs, and eventually that uh, burn will go away. However, if the burn is really severe, you're left with scar tissue, and that scar tissue stays there, never goes away. So it becomes a disfigurement clinically. This happens all over the body. But let's concentrate just on the heart for a minute and on the blood vessels. So the inflammation now is internal. It's in the arteries in the heart, it's in the muscle of the heart, and it's in the lining uh, and the muscle of the arteries. So the same process is occurring in the artery as occurred on your hand with a burn. So there's redness, there's swelling, there's scar tissue, and there's a defense that goes on to help you heal. That's part of your immune reaction. So all three of these responses occur somewhat simultaneously, but in regarding inflammation, it's one of the first responses that's a normal response to whatever the injury is to help you heal. But in the, in the process of that healing, you may end up with other problems like a scar tissue, so the scar tissue can occur in your hand, but you can also develop scar tissue in what we call plaque, which is obstruction in arteries in your heart and arteries in the rest of the body that can cause decreased blood supply and cause heart attacks. Now, I understand that inflammation is a key of many diseases, including autism, depression, and just about any disease I can think of. So tell me, what things cause inflammation? There is probably, in the, in, in the cardiovascular system, over 400 different causes for inflammation of the heart and the arteries. For example, you can put these into categories. You would be, the two first categories would be biochemical changes, and under that we would include things like toxins, infections, uh, high cholesterol, high blood sugar, obesity, smoking, uh, various endocrine disorders like thyroid and adrenal, uh, and there's you know many, many others. So that's the biochemical side. And on the other category is it's called biomechanical. So this is primarily your blood pressure and the stress of the arteries related to mechanical stresses from the blood pressure. So those two major categories, and with each of those, we have probably 25 what I call modifiable 
risk factors. And those are the ones I just mentioned. So if you look at heart disease in a simplistic manner uh, with 25 modifiable risk factors in a category, and within that there's another you know, 400 of detailed responses. So it goes way beyond what we're being taught in medical school and what we're being taught in our postgraduate training that there's only five risk factors. So the top five risk factors that all of you know about or have heard about from your physician are high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high blood sugar, diabetes, obesity, and smoking. Well, that's only five. There's you know, 395 more at least other risk factors that doctors are not checking, don't diagnose properly, and so they don't even treat them. So we end up with this epidemic of heart disease but not addressing the risk factors correctly. Now, I'm looking at some of these risk factors here, and they include things such as lack of sleep, lack of exercise, um, micronutrient deficiencies, heavy metals, pollutants, and things that we were not even beginning to think about. So tell me a little bit about, um, I mean, you're indicating infections can cause this. So this means if we've got an underlying infection such as Epstein-Barr or Lyme or herpes, et cetera, that that can increase our risk for heart attack? Absolutely. So any infection, whether it's bacterial, viral, fungal, TB, parasite, sets off an inflammatory immune response in the arteries in your heart and in the arteries peripherally. And so that, that immune response, that inflammatory response, leads to the same issues that we talked about earlier, like with high cholesterol or high blood sugar. And it goes back to what I first said initially. The insult that comes in, whether it's a bacteria or whether it's cholesterol or whether it's a sugar molecule, the body doesn't necessarily recognize it as a name. It doesn't say, oh, we've got sugar coming in or we've got uh, Epstein-Barr virus coming in. It says there's a foreign invader, there's an insult, and I'm going to try to contain the insult, get rid of it, and make sure that, that the arteries are not damaged in the process. So the body responds in one of those three ways. That's all it can do. It, it has a limited ability to defend itself. And in that that defense that the body's mounting, which is a normal and a correct response, if it continues to be an insult over and over and over again, it becomes like the artery is an innocent bystander in the ability to try to protect itself. And then you create this process that develops into what we now call a disease, whether it's atherosclerosis, heart attack, or coronary heart disease. But it's really the ability of the body to respond to the insults in an appropriate way acutely, but when it becomes chronic or dysregulated, then it becomes a disease, and we name it with something else. So I understand that a bad diet can certainly lead to inflammation. There's an inflammatory diet, standard American diet, that certainly pushes us down this pathway. Exactly. Uh, so, for example, a micronutrient that is a bad micronutrient, for example, a trans fatty acid or uh, excessive refined carbohydrates or gluten, something that comes into your body that is going to cause damage. And what, 
what initially happens is the lining of the gastrointestinal tract, the gut lining, becomes permeable. And you now carry across not only bad micronutrients that are inflammatory, but in addition, as the permeability becomes worse and these gap junctions open, you actually now carry in bacteria as well. So the bacteria, along with the uh, inflammatory diet, set off these finite responses in the uh, portal vein initially in the liver, and then it separates out and goes out to the rest of the body and to the arteries. So now you have a what we call endotoxemia. So metabolic endotoxemia is an initial result of a bad nutrition program associated with bacteria crossing the gut lining and into the bloodstream. Oh, we're going to see this theme, I think, in other talks about the thin lining of, you know, of the arteries as well as the gut, which is very important on protecting what's supposed to be inside and outside. So this sounds like a crucial focus for looking at our health. It is. The gut's really the, uh, the first uh, defense against all the other diseases that we happen. So if you have poor gut health, it's very hard to improve your cardiovascular health or your neurological health. And so we have, what we've got to start addressing is how do we close, close the gap? How do we get rid of all the things that are coming into our body? Because if we, if we have this enormous amount of insults, it's very hard to treat them on the other side. So I'd always tell my patients, in order to be a good cardiovascular specialist, you've got to understand the gastrointestinal tract as well. So what can we do to uh, help improve our gastrointestinal tract? We want to start always with proper nutrition. And to make it very simple for the audience, and that's what I tell my patients all the time, if it's white try not to eat it except for cauliflower because that would include white foods like white rice, bread of of any type, white or light brown, white potatoes, stay away from sweets, desserts, refined carbohydrates, and certainly stay away from from sodas. So that's, that's kind of the carbohydrate side of things. And then stay away totally from trans fats. So your diet really needs to consist of lots of vegetables, fruit, and then high-quality protein. And, of course, the best protein would be cold water fish, uh, organic chicken, organic turkey. Uh, Don't don't overdo it with red meat either because red meat can be detrimental if you eat too much of it. So those are the basics of how you do the nutrition. And then there's obviously nutritional supplements that can be very important that you don't necessarily get in your diet, like coenzyme Q10, for example, which has a lot of good science behind it. Uh, And then you want to be sure that you're you're not overweight, the body fat's uh, not accumulating because you're consuming either too many carbohydrates or inappropriate types of fats. And, you know, fats have gotten a bad name. There's some fats that are obviously good for you, and there's others that maybe not be so good. So good fats would include things like monounsaturated fats, olive oil, olive oil products, uh, omega-3 fatty acids are another type of good fat. That's what you get primarily in, in cold water fish, but you also can get it through supplements. And then the worst fat of all is the trans fats. Um, there's obviously controversy about saturated fats right now, which is another whole 
story, but there's probably some saturated fats that are good and others perhaps that are bad. So like you go into a fish store or French fries and the fat that's sitting there and reused, doesn't that automatically convert to trans fat or carcinogenic fats? Yeah, most of those that are recycled fats are really bad fats. They're, 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 they're heated to very high temperatures. They, de- they detoxify into things that have carcinogens and other very nasty compounds that can be very detrimental to your health. So you, you've got to... Uh, You've got to watch the fast foods industry very carefully because there's a lot of potential um, toxic metabolites that come out of some of the things that are made uh, when they fry the food or they reuse the same types of oils. Now, in 1984, Time magazine had on its cover a happy bacon face, and they were at that time encouraging us to get rid of animal fat, but instead to use corn oil. So what do you think of some of these highly processed oils, including corn oil, etc.? I don't, I don't recommend that you use highly processed oils. Um, most of these are not safe. They don't, have, they don't have any really health benefits. About the only oils that I recommend that I consider very safe would be uh, the olive oil uh, and the olive oil products and the omega-3 fatty acids. Now, uh, a lot of people uh, like coconut oil, for example, and I have to honestly say that there, there may be a place for coconut oil in some areas, but the data with coconut oil compared to the other oils I mentioned is, is not as strong. And so I don't want someone going out and using an, an abundance of coconut oil and not forget that there's other oils that have much more clinical and scientific data. Um, vegetable oils, other vegetables oil, don't have as, as good a data either. And the, the other myth out there, which is uh, the Europeans kind of laugh at us when, when we talk about not cooking with olive oil, you can cook with olive oil. You just don't want to take the temperature up to extreme levels. But uh, olive oil and omega-3 fatty acids are, are your top two oils to consume, both in your food but also perhaps as supplements. What about canola oil? Canola oil is not as good, in my opinion, as the other two. Um, it tends to have kind of a mixture of oils. It doesn't t- typically have health benefits and, and sometimes can be actually detrimental. So I wouldn't probably recommend it. Yeah, my understanding is it's very highly processed. It's called rapeseed oil in other places, and it's most likely to be genetically modified, so that's something we have to be aware of. Right. What about MCTs, a medium-chain triglycerides, which is M- had yeah, bad lately? Yeah, MCTs are probably, for the most part, reasonably healthy because they're short-chain ch- short triglycerides, so they're, they're well-absorbed, quickly metabolized, and not typically go into fat deposition and fat storage. Um, so, once again, you don't want to overuse anything. You want to keep it in balance, but, but MCTs are probably generally safe. Now, I understand that when we insult our body with a sugar load, that the body kind of creates a memory, so we're a lot more susceptible the second and third and hundredth time that it uh, comes our way. Yeah, so if whatever you consume, uh, in this case, uh, it's a refined sugar, uh, but the the body has the ability to recognize whatever that is, that insult the second time or the third time, and each time it's considered like a foreign antigen or something that's inflammatory, body mounts a heightened response to that insult, and that that is your metabolic memory. 
And so each time you do something to yourself that's not healthy, the response is actually more severe. Okay. You were mentioning toxins. Uh, I mean, I've been reading that heavy metals can certainly increase our risk for thyroid disease and heart disease and many other diseases. Can you speak about that for a little bit? Susan, most of us are toxic burdens from the time we are born. Um, We're exposed to toxins in our air, our water, our food, and it's rampant and it's getting worse, more prominent all across the world. And if we measured uh, the toxins, the pollutants, and the heavy metals that we all have in us, it would be very scary. And uh, once you've accumulated all these, uh, this toxic burden that's associated with virtually any disease you'd like to name, whether it's heart disease or brain disease or, or something else, and you want to try to not expose yourself to those toxins, and if you have them in your body, you try your best to get rid of them to reduce the disease burden. How do you get rid of them? Well, you can certainly do what's called oral or IV chelation. Um, there's uh, detoxification diets that people uh, can do that are very effective. Make sure the liver and the kidney in particular are healthy. Make sure your lungs are healthy. But um, most of these toxins, uh, you, you can get them out of the body. There, there are a few, though, that, that once they're in there, it's virtually impossible to get them out uh, without some pretty aggressive treatments, and sometimes the treatments don't even work. Yeah, I tend to be a little skeptical about chelation, but there are milder forms of detoxification, such as Epsom salt baths, baking soda baths, sauna, maybe even exercise, so that can help with the toxins. But I also understand, like, cleaning products and the the, oh, the people things people put on their bodies. For example, a woman might have, like, 120 chemicals on her by the time she leaves her home. All of these, including fragrances that they seem to put in all of our product, that seems to be risk factors as well. It's a huge problem. Uh, cosmetics, hairsprays, uh, you know, makeup, anything that you put on your skin can be rapidly absorbed. And uh, I don't think we have any idea of the severity of a lot of the things that are in our topical products that we put on. Yeah, it's really scary. And what concerns me is most people apply these so readily and they don't realize the risk factor for themselves, their kids, and for the environment when they get to work. We're coming to a break now, so hold on. We'll be back with more uh, in a few seconds. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. 
Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are listening to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. We'd love to hear from you about today's show. Send your email to Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. That's Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back, everybody. We have Mark Houston here, and we're learning so much about heart health. I mean, we're learning that so many toxins and so many things in our environment that we never even imagined connected to our health is affecting our health in every single way. Uh, We were just talking about toxins, the chemicals people put on themselves, the flame retardants that are on the couches. Even electromagnetic frequencies can affect our body and set off this chain that he described of inflammation, oxidative stress, and immune reactions. But let's get back to the second uh, response that the arteries have, and that was oxidative stress. Mark, what is oxidative stress? Oxidative stress occurs in a cell in, in, in um, kind of the, sort of the nuclear power plant of our cells. It's called a mitochondria. And the mitochondria are responsible for taking in all the food and energy from that food and converting it into energy for their body that can be used. And that has a name. It's called ATP. Well, normally this process is very efficient. Ninety-nine percent of the food we eat is converted very nicely into energy that we can use. However, the mitochondria aren't perfect. So about one, maybe two percent, of that energy process leaks, and what is leaking out are what are called oxidative stress molecules. And uh, you think of them as little Pac-Man that run all over the body and can chew up your cells and cause heart disease and, and cancer and make you age quicker. So oxidative stress is a normal process that we all have, but it's increased under certain conditions and it can be modified by certain treatments. So we want to be able to have a little oxidative stress to make the body work properly, but not have too much so that we end up with all these diseases. And some of the reasons that we have oxidative stress is related to our diet, and it's related to all these other things we've talked about. So those infinite insults that cause inflammation are almost the same ones that cause the oxidative stress. Tell me about the third component that uh, the vessels respond with, the immune reaction. So immune dysfunction, once again, is a normal response that the body has to fight off insults, particularly infections. Um, So when you have a foreign antigen that comes into the body and it's recognized as foreign, the body creates white cells. They're called T cells and B cells that try to contain the infection and then get rid of it. 
the process of immunologic function then is going to result in immunologic inflammation. So these, again, these, all three of these are tied together. That immunologic response is a defense mechanism. It's appropriate to keep you from dying or keep you from getting sicker. But if your immune system continues to respond and becomes overactive, chronically treating uh, some insult, it becomes what's called an autoimmune disease. You've heard of these like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and other rheumatologic diseases that are classified as autoimmune, where the body is actually attacking itself rather than attacking the organisms or the insults that come in. So if you think about this as sort of a new way that cardiovascular disease, like hypertension, for example, and heart disease, are really a type of autoimmune disease if they become chronic because the immune system starts to actually attack the arteries in the heart and make them dysfunctional and they create disease like heart attacks, strokes, and high blood pressure. Yeah, it's my understanding through various research that diabetes, autism, all of the diseases you can come up with have all these factors interrelated, the autoimmune response, oxidative stress, inflammation, mitochondrial dysfunction, and they're all interconnected and feed on each other, and every single one of them is exacerbated by the risk factors we've discussed, and they all interact. So this is pretty interesting to look at this process. Now, my understanding also, like the former risk factors, like you want your blood pressure 120 over 80, or like in diabetes, you want your blood sugars a certain thing. But isn't there a continuum, like I understand from the Kaiser study, for example, in diabetes, for each point your fasting morning sugar is above 84, you have a 6% chance of getting diabetes. So likewise, when your blood pressure starts to creep above 110 over 70, isn't that increasing your risk and putting you on the path toward cardiovascular disease? Yes, you made two very excellent points. Uh, One is that we have to properly define each of the risk factors that that are discussed in the traditional medicine model uh, and recognize that there's a continuum of risk. There's no magical cutoff at which you go to a zero risk until you get down to very low levels of each of these risk factors. So let's let's take high blood pressure first. the normal blood pressure, if you look at it in a population where the risk becomes virtually zero, it's a flat curve, is 110 over 70. Now, we tend to say let's keep it at 120 over 80 just for therapeutic reasons because it's hard to get it much lower, and that's what the studies show that's a fairly safe range. But if you go to, say, 125 over 85, all oh, that doesn't sound that high, that five-point increase in the top number systolic and the bottom number diastolic does have a significant impact. It's a continuum for each millimeter of mercury in your blood pressure that increases your risk for heart attack, stroke, and kidney problems. So along with that number, there's a lot of other things we have to put into the equation. When you go to the doctor's office, most of the time you get your blood pressure checked with a cuff one time, maybe twice, and then you go home. But Unless you do 24-hour blood pressure monitoring, and we have machines that do that, you miss a lot of the parts of the hypertension story that are important for both proper diagnosis and proper treatment. 
For example, does your blood pressure fall at night adequately? Do you have labile blood pressure that's going up and down all day? Uh, when you're waking up in the morning, does your pressure surge to very high levels very quickly and put you at risk for a stroke? So these things have to be done with a 24-hour monitor. So uh, the bottom line to this story is two things. One is if you have high blood pressure, you should get a 24-hour blood pressure monitor to appropriately diagnose and treat. And two, recognize that even small increases in blood pressure uh, have a risk for cardiovascular problems. What about the other uh, stated cardiovascular risk factors? Is there a continuum on these as well that we need to look at? Yes, and, and the second one, which is uh, very prominently marketed in the literature, is cholesterol, uh, or dyslipidemia is the medical term for that. So once again, the, the LDL cholesterol, which is the one that t- typically causes most of the disease, but you have to recognize that LDL cholesterol comes in different sizes and different particles, and you have to measure those with advanced lipid testing to get an accurate assessment, again, of risk and treatment. The old routine lipid profiles, in my opinion, are obsolete, and they don't get to the essence of the problem with dyslipidemia. So we routinely do advanced lipid testing, and what that means is we're measuring LDL and HDL and triglycerides, but we're also measuring what size they are and how many of those particles you have. And then we lastly measure what's called functionality or dysfunctionality of your good cholesterol, which is HDL. And that's sort of like your cleanup crew. So if you look at this in a very simplistic way, you have Bad LDL particles and sizes on one side, that's the garbage. And on the good side, we have the HDL, which is the garbage collector or the cleanup crew, and it has different sizes and different particles. And unless you measure both sides of that equation and all the details within the equation, you really don't know what you're doing as far as good therapy and risk analysis. So let me see if I can understand this. The risk factors for cardiovascular disease would be the number and the size of the very small LDL particles because they can get through the vessels and create a lot of havoc, and also the functioning of the uh, one layer of cells on the arterial wall. So we're looking at endothelial dysfunction. Do I have that correct? Yeah, in essence, uh, so the the endothelial lining, which is uh, sort of the barrier between the blood and then what goes on below the endothelium where all the plaque and inflammation and the finite responses occur. If that endothelial lining is porous, it has big holes in it, doesn't work well, doesn't make nitric oxide, which is very important in arterial health, then you end up with early endothelial dysfunction, which then leads to plaque formation and atherosclerosis and heart disease. So these tiny little LDL particles, they're more likely to get through the lining, okay, and then they create the problem below the lining the endothelial dysfunction. And then the HDL, which is supposed to clean all that mess up, if you don't have it or it's not working well, then that process of garbage continues without having any garbage collectors. So my understanding is the advanced lipid test will measure the size and a number of the small LDL miscreant particles. And also there's an office test that can be performed uh, measuring the endothelial dysfunction, isn't there? 
Yes, and we do that routinely in the Hypertension Institute here in Nashville. It's uh, it's called the Indipat. Indipat's the most sophisticated, scientifically validated uh, machine that we have for measuring endothelial dysfunction. The test only takes about 20 to 30 minutes, and we measure endothelial function, which is a indirect measure of nitric oxide bioavailability, but also it measures heart rate variability, which is a sympathetic and parasympathetic balance. And then thirdly, uh, it will measure uh, the augmentation index, which is a measure of arterial elasticity and compliance. So uh, if we cannot have access to these tests, I mean, obviously we can go to a functional medicine practitioner and they will be looking at these uh, diseases in a similar way and we could have access to these tests. But if our practitioner is not aware of these concepts, what test can we get to get some ideas of where we are, like the high-sensitivity CRP will give us an idea of our, I guess, our, you know, our inflammation. And are there ratios such as uh, total cholesterol over H, uh, you know, triglycerides over HDL, et cetera, that can give us a, just a rough roadmap of where we are? Well, there are certain biomarkers that are helpful. Uh, for example, you mentioned high-sensitivity C-reactive protein is a good marker for inflammation. Uh, thyroid antibodies uh, actually are a good measure of your uh, immune function. Uh, there's another um, biomarker that's done out of Cleveland Heart Lab. It's called ADMA, which measures nitric oxide bioavailability. And there's another one called MPO or myeloperoxidase, which gives you an idea of oxidative stress and inflammation also through Cleveland Heart Lab. So those biomarkers are, are very good if you don't have access to some of the more sophisticated testing. Okay. Um what about salt in hypertension? Uh, aren't there some people that are salt sensitive? For example, they might have a low aldosterone renin ratio. Are there some people that should be careful of salt and other people that uh, they don't have to worry as much about the effect of salt? Now, sodium chloride is generally bad for everybody, but it's going to be worse for those who have the inability to excrete the sodium load for various reasons, usually related to some problem with uh, kidney filtration or too much sodium reabsorption. Uh, but in general, uh, you shouldn't have more than probably 2,000 milligrams of sodium per day for anybody because salt, or sodium chloride, I should say, is toxic to the artery wall. It's toxic to endothelium, causes stroke, uh, independent of raising blood pressure, causes heart enlargement, kidney problems, uh, independent of blood pressure. So salt sensitivity has been generally connected to hypertension. So if you eat too much salt, you get hypertensive more commonly if you're, for example, African-American than in Caucasian. But, but I would like to send the message very strongly that high sodium chloride intake for anybody, whether you're salt sensitive or not, is probably not good for your health. And you balance that sodium chloride intake with magnesium and potassium, which are beneficial, and they counterbalance the sodium chloride. Now, I'd like to point out to our listeners that we will have future speakers who advocate salt, especially Himalayan salt. Uh, you need to do your own research, and when there's a question, it might be good to be conservative because there will be different opinions about this. Um, uh, what about calcium and, you know, if you know, taking calcium supplements? You know, there was a lot of flurry recently that calcium intake was uh, increased cardiovascular risk, and recent studies literally published in the last three to six months indicate that, that that study was bogus, it was, it was fallacious. Uh, calcium does not increase cardiovascular risk. Uh, what was really probably seen there is the vitamin D was the true story, and if your vitamin D was low, 
and it wasn't accounted for in the study, that was why people had increased risk. I think what we're going to see throughout this program is that vitamin D is so important in many diseases. It has so many actions, including anti-inflammatory, helping the immune system. It helps the gut. It helps just about every system we can think about. So this is going to be a recurring theme, the importance of vitamin D. So how much vitamin D do you recommend we take? We try to get the blood level between 60 and 80 nanograms per ml. Um, And whatever that takes, Uh, generally, if you get the body loaded up, get a stable level, most patients require about 4,000 international units per day to maintain that level. Now, if they live in an environment where there's a lot of sun and they don't have too much problem with sun exposure, uh, that's where most of the conversion occurs. Otherwise, you have to give it in an oral supplement because food sources generally are not going to keep it up to an, an adequate level. What's, does natokinase help uh, in cardiovascular disease? I've heard some people say that if your blood is kind of thick, that this is something that can help the flow of the blood through the body. Yeah, we do measure, uh, you know, different clotting factors, risk for thrombosis, uh, blood viscosity, all of which can increase risk for thrombotic events, embolic events throughout the cardiovascular system. And there's a lot of things you can take. There's safe anticoagulants um, that are natural, and there's anticoagulants that are prescription. Uh, probably the safest that has the best data is just literally baby aspirin. Uh, if you get into more complicated ones, there is a risk of bleeding. Natokinase is a good anti-inflammatory. It's also good for thrombosis. The problem is there haven't been as many good clinical studies with natokinase in control settings as there has been with some of the other agents. I like natokinase. I use it. But if I use it, it's done in a setting where I'm using other things that's in the blood, too, like aspirin or omega-3 fatty acids or garlic, uh, vitamin E. All these things can help keep the blood thin and reduce thrombotic risk. I've also read that it's best to take nanokinase on an empty stomach so it doesn't interact with the food in the stomach. Correct. What about vitamin K2 in health? K2 is a very special form. Uh, There's a form called K2MK7, and um, it's generally related to both bone health but also arterial calcification. And in my practice in cardiovascular disease, we're using vitamin K2MK7 to reduce arterial calcifications monitored by CT uh, calcium scoring. And uh, we've got protocols in place that actually uh, allow the calcification to be reduced along with the vitamin K2 and K7. We use omega-3 fatty acids. We use a form of kaolic garlic and other agents that will actually retard plaque formation and calcification in the arteries in the heart. Are you saying we can reverse cardiovascular disease and arthrosclerosis? Yes, you can. Yes, it's uh, been documented. Uh, there's data with both drugs and with nutrients now. Uh, the first came out with the use of statins showing you can actually cause plaque regression, plaque stabilization from rupture-prone plaque to stable plaque. And we've also now seen data with nutritional supplements and diet. Uh, you know, if you have a plant-based diet, for example, you can re- we can retard plaque uh, growth and, and get progress, decre- uh, regression, and if you combine that with omega-3 fatty acids, kaolic garlic, vitamin K2, MK7, early studies suggest you can also stabilize the plaque and the arterial calcification, and in some cases actually get regression. How exciting that is. Can you please explain the phrase arthrosclerosis is a postprandial disease? Yes, after, after you eat, we get this metabolic endotoxemia where we've got uh, bad food particles as well as bacteria crossing the gut lining. If the gut lining is porous, leaky gut, permeable gut, then that 
that transmembrane potential is worse and you get more metabolic endotoxemia. So your excursions of blood sugar and triglycerides and all the bacteria and microparticles that cross the gut are very high after eating, and that lasts for at least four to six hours. So by the time you're ready to eat again, you still haven't cleared the first mess. So this metabolic endotoxemia becomes what's called postprandial or post-meal endotoxemia, and that's the greatest risk for atherosclerosis is that time period after you eat where you don't clear all those microparticles, bacteria, and bad food out of your system. Wow. Okay, and uh, what about D-ribose? Does that help in cardiovascular disease? It's the well, backbone ribose, of ATP. We uh, routinely in patients who have ischemic heart disease, which is coronary heart disease, and those who have congestive heart failure. And in essence, what D-ribose does is it goes through a pathway that increases ATP, which goes to the heart muscle, and it makes the chest pain better, the angina better, and makes the heart muscle function better. And we pull people out of cardiac transplants literally by using ribose, along with CoQ10, taurine, and carnitine in a cardiovascular metabolic program, metabolic cardiology, uh, that's been very successful. I'd like to make a comment to the audience is that there'll be future speakers who do not have a positive uh, view of statins. I think we have to take it in balance and look at the good and the bad. It's good at remodeling, but it has uh, depletes CoQ10 and there have been uh, muscle problems and metabolic problems that have been associated with it. I understand the research has been on, on middle-aged men, and it's more questionable for women. So once again, the, the listener has to balance these things and weigh the good and the bad. Don't just take one thing and go off with it and say that's the holy grail, because we have to balance all of these things. Um, uh, what about risk factors for women versus men? Yeah, women, women have been somewhat neglected in the cardiovascular field because... Um, they, they have atypical symptoms when they have heart disease that are missed, and they tend to have heart attacks uh, at an equal level after menopause as men do. So I think you have to be very careful in listening to women who may say, well, I have a little shortness of breath or I have fatigue, but they may not complain of chest pain and realize that that could be a symptom of underlying coronary heart disease and be aggressive in your diagnostic testing and your treatment, just like you do with a male who may have classic symptoms. Okay, so so if you were giving advice to our listener, uh, what advice and uh, takeaway points would you leave them with? Uh, first thing is to recognize every potential risk factor that you have, um, define them correctly, run the appropriate test, and then try to remove as many insults as you have in your environment, and then measure with a test, uh, advanced testing, those finite responses, measure your vascular response, your biomarkers if you can, and to do appropriate therapy with nutrition, uh, supplements, drugs, integrative therapy, diet, uh, sleep exercise, you know, and keep your weight under control. Okay. Um, how do environmental factors play into cardiovascular disease and our healing? So our environment is generally toxic. And uh, so every day you have to be careful what you breathe, what you drink, what you're eating, you know, whether your food has pesticides, organicides, whether it's GMO. And this is hard to do, and you have to educate yourself and be sure that you're balancing your environmental toxins as best as you can by accumulating knowledge because if you can reduce those insults, 
in reducing environmental toxicology load, you'll reduce your risk for CVD and cardiovascular problems. And these insults are so many, including exercise, poor sleep, stress, sedentary lifestyles, smoking, and many things we haven't even thought about. Uh, let me just wrap up, as I understand this, that cardiovascular disease starts at an early age. A blood vessel has only three possible ways to responding to a number of many, many insults, and that's inflama- inflammation, oxidative stress, and immune dysfunction. Our blood vessels have memories, so once we insult it, it's a lot more sensitive the next time. And our blood vessels, an innocent bystander doing what it's supposed to do. There's a continuum of risk, so just because your blood pressure is 121 over 81, that doesn't mean that you can uh, totally ignore the problem. And our hearts are part of a big system interacting with everything imaginable, including toxins, microorganisms, bacteria. Um, And um, so I think that what Dr. Houston is recommending is a targeted personal approach to includes our genetic background, looking at our nutritional status, looking at antioxidant status, and including nutraceuticals, antioxidants, lifestyle interventions, vitamins, minerals, anti-inflammatory um, supplements, anti-immune supplements, along with good pharmacological um, treatment as well. Um, if, if you want to know more about Dr. Houston, I'm going to list his books on my website. And uh, do you want to leave uh, an address that people can uh, you know, write to you if, you if they want to follow up with more information? Probably the best website for me is hypertensioninstitute.com. Okay. And any last word? We've got about two minutes left, so any last words that you'd like to leave our audience with? Yeah, I I think that um, patient education is key to seek out the appropriate uh, physician who understands this new medical model and and to um, be careful with unsubstantiated claims and, and looking at the Internet where things are uncontrolled you know, get a good source um, and learn, read the best books about disease, particularly cardiovascular disease, and take that information and take it to your doctor and try to get your physician to understand the concepts and run the test. And if they don't know how to do it, to please make referrals to some of the new metabolic and functional medicine doctors who can get you on the right track and try to prevent your diseases before you have something that happens and then you have an acute intervention, which is usually too late. And in summary, I would second this, encourage you to do your own research, to become more informed, so you can take care of yourself and others. Have a good day. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 